The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Hi, this is KUCI 88.9 in Irvine. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. We're also live audio streaming at KUCI.org. I'm Lloyd. I'm the engineer and co-host on this show with Mari. And to find out about our great guests and VIPs we have on this show, go to www.KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. If you don't know our host, let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a local attorney and privacy consultant. She's the author of several books, including her own, her, her two new books, Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft with a CD. She's testified many times in the California legislature and the U.S. Congress and hosted her own 90-minute PBS special this year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. She's been featured on 48 Hours, Dateline, CNN, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows. To learn more, please visit www.identitytheft.org. So let's get started with a great show. Good evening, Mari. Oh, good evening, Lloyd. We do have a great show today. I'm so thrilled to be able to have Linda Foley back on with us. Linda Foley, as you know, is a good friend of ours. She and Jay are the co-directors and co-founders of the Identity Theft Resource Center. That's right. Uh, Great people. Linda was kind enough to write the foreword to Safeguard Your Identity, one of my books from last year. And I am thrilled to sit on her advisory board. And uh, let me tell our audience a little bit about Linda because she is just terrific. Uh, As I said, Linda is the co-founder of the Identity Theft Resource Center, which is a nationwide nonprofit identity theft program uh, based in San Diego, California. So she's just down the freeway. And uh, this program was established in 1999 in response to the growing need for victim assistance because we know that identity theft has just grown like an epidemic. And the ITRC is nationally respected for all of its expertise and its work, and it's really due to to Linda's uh, leadership. Linda was a victim herself, just like I was, and we were, uh, you know, we commensurated about it many times. Linda's uniquely uh, suited to understanding, you know, how this crime works, what the problems are, how, how victims feel. She has helped thousands of victims through her website, through email, telephone correspondence, and she's even helped to develop a whole network of other people who are part of the Identity Theft Resource Center. And uh, her website has a tremendous amount of information and help sheets and what to do, all sorts of stuff at identity, uh, www.idtheftcenter.org. Uh, Linda provides testimony uh, in the California legislature as well as in Congress, and she provides information for national and state conferences, task forces. She's a leader. In fact, uh, she will be at the uh, governor's conference on identity theft as well presenting. And besides all of her work uh, with the community, she is a media mongol too because she's been on so many different television shows 
and been a, a great resource for the Wall Street Journal and many other uh, local as well as national periodicals and magazines. So she also helps companies, by the way, to create better document handling practices. And uh, she's been the, you know, she and Jay have received so many honors. I'll just tell you a couple of them. She um, was the recipient of the prestigious Foundation for Improvement of Justice Award, which she got in t uh, September of 2000. And in 2004, she was the National Crime Victim Services Award. She received that uh, by the U.S. Attorney General. In fact, we have that on our website, that picture when she and Jay received that from Ashcroft. And uh, she's even received commendations from many, many people, including the United States Senator uh, Dianne Feinstein and our former governor, uh, Gray Davis. And I'll tell you, if Schwarzenegger was uh, up to speed, he'd be giving her some commendations, too, because she is just terrific. So, Linda, are you there? Are you ready to talk to me? I don't know. I sound so big. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Linda, you know I you are one of my very favorite people. You and Jay do such a terrific job, and we have, gosh, we've known each other probably almost 10 years now. Well, you know, you helped me through my own identity theft case. It seemed every time I turned around, I was in new territory, and you were one of the few people I could turn to for questions. Well, you know what? We kind of forged our way through the forest together, didn't we? We sure did. So that was the, the dinosaur age of identity theft almost. Right. Well, you know, we talked last year about identity theft in general, but this time we're going to talk about another issue today that I don't think people even have a clue about, and that's child identity theft. And you have been a real leader in, you know, trying to help families with kids who've been victims of identity theft. So let's start out here, and, and let's explain to our audience, really, what is child ID theft? This is a subject that's near and dear to my heart because it just staggers the mind that you can give birth to a child and hold them in your arms and say, I will protect you the rest of your life, and then turn around and ruin their future. Child identity theft is very similar to adult identity theft. Someone is using that child's social security number and sometimes their name, but sometimes not, and using it to get credit, to get jobs, um, a driver's license. We have, for example, um, it was cute when she was young. Police came when she was two years old and wanted to arrest her for armed robbery. Mm. He said he gave this picture of a toddler with the diapers hanging down going, sick him up. <laughs> right. And at five years old for drug trafficking. Now she's 19 years old, and it's not funny anymore because the perpetrator is still active, and then there's warrants out for her arrest. Well, when she was young, it was easy to prove she wasn't the perpetrator. At 19, that's going to be a little harder for us to do. So it's not just credit problems, but they can create all sorts of chaos in a person's life. Um, we have two sets of children cases, ones where we find out we're, when the child is still a child, and then we have a growing group of people who are finding out now that they've reached 18, 19, 20 years old that someone has been using their Social Security number long before they had a chance to use it for the first time themselves. So, Linda, let's, let's talk about the difference in terms of how, how they might find out here about this. How, how, how do kids find out or how do parents find out that their children are victims of identity theft? In very much the same ways that we find out as adults. And I'm going to continually keep breaking this into two categories. Okay. If it's a child, the parents will start getting telephone calls from collection agencies. 
Um, we're up to tax time right now. They may get a form back from the IRS saying, I'm sorry, this tax return is not acceptable. The Social Security number that you're declaring as a deduction has already been used by someone else because either someone's declaring that child as their child or perhaps filed tax papers because they're working as with that child's Social Security number. They may get credit cards. There's an occasional time the pre-approved credit card offers are a problem, but usually those tie back to the fact that someone's on a marketing list, so it's not a big trigger point for me. But if your child is getting a credit card, that is problematic. Um, unfortunately, with these blogs that we have now, kids are giving out personal information without realizing that they may be getting involved in a scam. So we have problems with that area as well. As they reach adulthood and their majority, 18 years old or older, it's the same thing as the rest of us. You're denied credit tenancy. You may not be able to get a college loan. You can't get a cell phone. Those are all indications if you've got a problem. Or you might not even be able to get a driver's license. Right. Now, Linda, you know, I was just talking with somebody about this recently. I know you and I have been talking a lot about this lately, but I was thinking about, you know, I'm at the age where when I was a kid, I didn't get my Social Security number until I was going to go to work. You know, I was about 15 years old or 16 years old, and I was going to go and teach swimming, and I had to have a Social Security number. So I applied much later, but the federal law now is is that by the time you're two, you have to have a Social Security number, and most of the time they just give it to you right in the hospital. Actually, it's even at it's sooner than two now because in order for a parent to declare a child as a deduction on their tax return, right, they have to have a Social Security number. So it's going to be somewhere between January and December within that first year of that child's birth that they're going to get a Social Security number so they can get that tax deduction. Most and that's people a get- broad period of time for someone to use that information before someone reaches 18. Exactly. In fact, you know, I was just talking to some people who've had babies recently, and right when you're, you know, when the baby is born, when you're at the hospital, they give you the form to fill it out right then and there. And then, of course, I found out about some babies that their identity was stolen when they were first born, right there at the hospital. We have a man in Washington whose child was born in a hospital, and a hospital worker, it didn't even involve the Social Security number looked at the rec- patient records, and came in a few weeks later complaining of back pain related to work. We're trying to figure out how a two-month-old has a work comp case with a bad back. Yeah. Oh, goodness. I mean, it is as crazy as that, but when you think about it, from pretty much the time that we start getting involved in the world, and that may mean with the pediatrician. Right. With your birth with the hospital. Right. Um, grandma gives a nice check for the child's birth, which you put in a, a college fund at a financial institution. Right. We're already on databases. Exactly. And unfortunately, as we all know, those databases can be breached. They also turn into marketing lists. And there are people who unfortunately will look at some of the, that information and go, oh, great. This is perfect, and it's the same problem we have with terminally ill patients who probably are never going to check their credit reports because they figure it doesn't make any difference anymore. Right. Who thinks to check a child's credit report? The reality is there should not be a credit report for a child, and we don't want people to start thinking, I've got to check my child's credit report every year. 
we have to go on the assumption everything is okay unless we hear something negative. And and that's pretty scary. I'm getting more and more people who are calling me and saying, gee, my, my child's uh, uh, birth certificate was stolen, or gee, I lost something with my child's social security number. What do I do? Or I didn't get my child's social security card in the mail when I first was supposed to receive it. Right, right. We're getting a lot of those. And we're actually working with the post office who has now contacted the Social Security Administration to try to find a safer way to get those cards out to those kids and to the parents. You know, and also a lot of people are starting up these new IRS 529 college plans where you put your child's Social Security number in there. And, you know, people can divert money and start building from the time the children are babies. And and I know I recommend this to all of my clients, and, and I've even done this. But you worry because there is the Social Security number out there, and if there is a security breach... Obviously, again, your child is going to be subjected to to being very vulnerable. Absolutely. To... And then we've got the beneficiary on a life insurance program. Exactly. We've got to put the Social Security number so they can track them down. And then when you go to court, if you're going through a divorce, even though you can redact some numbers on your you know divorce papers, you absolutely cannot yes. redact those numbers for certain of those uh, forms that you must submit to the court that aren't in the public records, but you know, who has access to it, so many people at the court system themselves. So that we've seen identity theft, even from people going through a divorce, their children become victims of identity theft because their social security number was readily available. And these are all the unknown perpetrators. Right. Which, now, I can't say for a fact because no one has done any statistical studies, and I don't honestly think we'll ever get some good statistics on this, Anecdotally, that's only about one-third of my calls. Two-thirds of the calls is that a parent has stolen the child's Social Security number and is using it. Now, that is a real vulture, right? It's, it's disgusting. <laughs> it's, the parent has destroyed their own financial credit because they have no sense of financial responsibility. And then they turn to, I call them the all-in-the-family cases, they start using the social security numbers of siblings, parents, their children, whatever they happen to have handy. So here we have the horrible experience of an 18-year-old finding out that their social security number was used by their parent, the betrayal, the violation, and how does an 18-year-old have enough life experience to say, I'm going to file a police report against my parent? Right. It's the same as domestic abuse. You know, any parent is better than no parent. Don't tell on a parent. Right. But we can't clear it up unless we have a police report because too many of our laws depend on that police report now. That's right. So, so what do you do if you have a situation in which a parent has stolen an identity? What do you tell them to do if they don't want to go to the police or if the other parent doesn't want to go to the police? They're saying, hey, you know, both parents may be involved. Maybe their credit is ruined and they want to buy a house, so they use the child's Social Security number or something like that. I have a case like that in Texas, and, of course, you always get that denial. Oh, I was just going to borrow it. I was going to help make the child's credit better when they got older. There's all sorts of justification. Um, it's a the father's in a federal penitentiary for armed robbery. Uh. Lovely family. Um, he masterminded stealing the child's identity because they didn't have very good credit at that point. The mother did it. She got four months of jail time. She's on probation, and the child has been placed back with her. She's 11 years old. I'm still worrying about her for the next seven years. Who's monitoring her credit report? 
to make sure that doesn't continue to happen. Unfortunately, the one who could put the credit freeze, which we have in California as well, on that credit report would be the parent. But the parent is the one who stole the identity, so they're not going to do that. Right. We really need to get the court system involved in this. Um, We see a lot of this with split families, and I often don't have a problem with the police report issue if it's a split family, and there is one big indicator we keep hearing from split families is, my child is at the other parent's house, and they're calling home to say goodnight, and I see their name on the caller ID. Right. That's not because your child's calling. It's because the account was set up in that child's name. So that's a clue for you. And you may even need to take a camera and photograph it so you have evidence because we need to have collect as much as we can. It is possible once we know something is wrong to order a child's credit report. And that's the time to do it, not just as a let's do it on a regular basis every year type thing because we don't want to artificially create a credit report with too many dis- consumer disclosures. But if you suspect there is a problem, you must write the credit reporting agencies sending very specific documentation showing you have custody, the birth certificate of the child, who you are, which is your driver's license, the child's copy of the child's social security card, and such. And then they will mail you the credit report so you can see what's going on. At that point, then we get the police involved. But I also worry about the fact that our timing has to be very careful. If this is a joint custody situation, we certainly don't want the police to go out and start questioning the offending parent while the children are in the home. Right, right. We've got to do it while they're at the other home. So all of this is a case-by-case type of situation, and my best advice is always find someone who knows how to handle these cases and work with them. Linda, so, you know, one of the problems that that I'm finding with people who have children who are victims of identity theft is that, obviously, similar to adult identity theft, is that when the parents find out there's... there may not be a a credit report in the child's name. Maybe utilities were open or maybe an apartment or something that won't appear in a credit report and there's no profile in that child's name. What what do you suggest parents do then? The same thing we do as adults. You start calling the utility companies and unfortunately sometimes you have to pretend to be that person and say, I want to just make sure I know what the correct balance on my bill is. Right, right. It's not legally correct, but sometimes, you know, you have to do what you have to do in order to protect your child because they're not going to give out information to you until you've proven something. You can't go to the police with suspicions. You need to go with substantiating evidence. Once we have at least one piece of evidence, then we go to the police because with that police report and our federal law that we have, we can now go ahead and ask for transaction and application records. If, say, the offending person lives in Austin, Texas, I would call the utility companies that serve Austin, Texas, and make sure that there's no credit in that child's name at that point because now I've got my police report to back it up. So, Linda, but I'm, I'm talking about now a little bit about the credit reporting agencies. You and I have talked about this. When there is no profile there, but you want to put a fraud alert on, let's say you find out that there were utilities opened or you found out that someone was using your child's Social Security number and they were working in your child's name and you want to put up some barriers, 
um, what do you do about if, if, you know, the credit reporting agencies don't have a profile yet, they don't have a profile on your child if someone has been maybe, um, you know, working in your child's name or, or something hasn't, you know, they haven't uh, applied for credit yet. And so what, what can you if do? If it's a utility company, I go straight to the utility companies mm-hmm. and I talk with them directly. Um, we can also talk with the IRS, ta- IRS taxpayer advocates who can check to see if there's been tax returns in that name or social security number. And often, keep in mind, if this is an unknown perpetrator, since this is the first record that's ever going into a file, they may not even use the child's name. So you always want to check the social security number first and do a search by social security number and not a search by name and social security number. So, Linda, how can we get, and you and I have talked about this, about actually establishing a profile so you can literally put a fraud alert or a credit freeze on a child's profile? Is that a, is that a real... I'm not sure that we can because there's so many different databases. We're talking about the big data um, companies like ChoicePoint, LexisNexis, who collect data on all of us. Um, we're talking about financial institutions, credit issuers and such, we are talking with a federal senator right now trying to put together some information so that at least the credit issuers will know they're dealing with a minor. Once we're able to show a company that this is a minor, Mm -hmm. they're pretty quick to drop the case and mark it off as fraud because that's an unenforceable contract, as you know, as an attorney. Right. Minors cannot sign legal and binding contracts. Right. Um, If it's employment, I'm actually sometimes happy about that because then we know where to go and arrest that person. Right. We catch them right there on the job. But we need a police department that's going to be cooperative and understand that child identity theft is a problem and it is identity theft. And it's because of media exposure like this that we are finally going to be able to get that going. So, Linda, let's say I, w- I have a child and I want to protect that child. Let's say I found out that there was a security breach um, at the financial institution where my 529 plan is, my college funds for my children, and, you know, that Social Security number is there. So now I want to get the credit reporting agencies to actually establish a credit profile so I can put a fraud alert on. Can I do that? Will they let me do that now? If there is already a credit report established, you can put a fraud alert on there. And I would go one step further. If you are in a state that has a freeze program, get a freeze on there as well. Lock it down tight. Now, we're going to play a little here. If this is an unknown perpetrator and we're seeing excessive abuse of that Social Security number for work purposes, uh, benefits, Yep. We've seen people apply for welfare, food stamps, and such using that child's information. Right. Okay. Then what we have to do is perhaps look into changing that child's Social Security number. Right. That would be one option because we want them to have a fresh start when they're 18. Right. If it is a known perpetrator, such as a family member, and this person is going to have access to that Social Security number, right? then we can't do it until that child's ready to turn 18 because then the child will be the guardian of their own Social Security number and it doesn't have to be shared 
with someone who may be abusing it. Right. Of course, if it's and a divorce... And it comes back to the family courts, too. I was just going to say, you know, in family law, if you have... And, and, you know, I do a lot of family law. If you have someone um, who's going through a divorce and one parent, let's say the non-custodial parent, has stolen the identity of the child, you could probably get a court order that they they not, um, if the child does get a new Social Security number, that that number not be revealed to that parent. I try to get something similar through a child exploitation in California, mm-hmm. Bender or Welfare Code for child for Children. Right. And it got poo-pooed right out of, at its first reading, actually. They just don't understand child identity theft at the legislative level yet. We're still working on public awareness. Um, I would like to see a guardian ad litem appointed for that child. Yes. If it's a single family, a single parent family, for instance. Mm-hmm. Someone who's going to keep track of that child's credit report and make sure that freeze stays on there and that it's a condition of probation that, you know, it gets checked every once in a while and that if it has to be paid for, then the parent who is the offender pays for it. Um, we have to protect our children and their futures. Or we end up with a situation that we've had before where all they have left for themselves is, I've gone through four years of college and I can't get a job because I can't get a security clearance. Right. So they're working in a fast food joint. Or if they're a woman, maybe they're stripping or worse. Right. They might turn to a life of crime. And sometimes I hear from grandparents who say, my, grand, my daughter is stealing my grandchildren's Social Security numbers, but I don't want to report it to the police. Right. I don't want to get her in trouble. And I said, but look what she's doing to your grandkids. What kind of environment is this to grow up in? What are they learning is acceptable, normal behavior in our society? They're getting the wrong message. So maybe you're giving a gift of love to your grandkids by going ahead and reporting this to the police so that if this is an act of desperation, the heat is off and it's really cold, we can get them into the right assistance program. If this is a sociopath who simply does not believe in following the rules and regulations we have put down as a society, then we need to deal with it in a different way. But I'm not the one who's going to decide that. That's the job for the courts. That's the job for Child Protective Services. If we don't let them know what's going on, then no one can help that child. You know, Linda, also there, there is that profile of the uh, woman who is the identity thief, who is between the ages of, you know, 30 and 40, who is a methamphetamine addict, who, may, who, who we know is often taking the identity of their own children, and they're, they're, they're addicts, and they're selling that information to somebody else. They may not even be using it. They're using it for sales. So, and they've got 10 and 20 people using that child's Social Security number now. Right, right. We also have, and it's understandable, we have immigrants who've come to the United States illegally. Mm-hmm. They have a baby here. That baby now gets a Social Security number because they were born in the United States. Right. The family uses that Social Security number for the next 18 years. Dad gets a great job, works his way up the career ladder. They have a house. They are good citizens. They pay their bills. There's no tickets. They obey all the laws and everything else. Ideal family, right? <laughs> but what happens to that 18-year-old when she wants to finally use her own Social Security number? Right. It's, she can't because it's become so much an integrated part of the family, and they have a mortgage, they have a couple of houses. 
What is she to do or he to do? And this is one of those times we say, absolutely, talk to an immigration law attorney. There are times we need attorneys in our lives in this. You know, sometimes in child identity theft, where we've got family court issues or we have immigration issues, this is the time that we need professional advice. It's not the time to play amateur. Yeah, that's a really good point that especially when there's a divorce situation, you really need to talk to your family lawyer. The problem is a lot of the family lawyers don't even understand identity theft. So you need I'm hoping you're going to change that because I, I know you teach a lot of classes in that. <laughs> Right. And and we have to educate the judges, too, that they yeah. have to do something about it. But let me let me just tell everybody who we're talking to. If you just started listening in, we are listening to a wonderful colleague and a great friend of mine, Linda Foley, who is the uh, co-executive director of the Identity Theft Resource Center in San Diego, California. They do wonderful work at www.idtheftcenter.org, and you will find wonderful fantastic, helpful uh, resources for you if you are concerned about protecting your uh, identity and also if you become a victim. Linda, let's talk a little bit more, you know, when we when you were saying about how um, identity theft for, with children is not just financial, it can be something uh, criminal as well. I remember uh, you and I have talked about this before that uh, Kevin Mitnick, who was the FBI hacker told me when he interviewed me actually for a radio show in, in Los Angeles that he committed a child identity theft. Yep. What he would do is steal the identities of children who were had actually died under the age of two and he would work under their name and he would go from city to city and as soon as he thought that the feds were near him he would drop that name and go to another city and look up the records and see the birth records and the death records. and Or just walk through graves, a, a, a cemetery, and find it all that way. Right, but he told me what he did was he got the death certificates, and yeah. uh, except for California, who that now you can, you know, the death certificate has the Social Security number of the person who died right on the death certificate. But we have now in California redacted that except for family members. But at the time when he was doing this, he could go online, get the the death certificate, and steal the identity of these children. And he said, I wasn't hurting anybody because I was paying my bills, paying my utilities. But, of course, when he'd leave quickly, um, guess who got the fallout? So it is, um, it is something that people don't realize that you can use it to avoid getting caught, um, and you can do criminal things, and it's, it's a, a real nightmare for parents. It is, and it's scary. Um... What I have to keep reminding parents about is my most, the cases I get most concerned on and work the most quickly on are those that are 17, 16 and a half, coming close to 18. If this is a child who's three years old, four years old, right. we still have some time right. to get this all straightened out. And we have not had a lot of battles with credit issuers to get this taken care of with employers and getting records cleared once they understand we're talking about a child. Um, again, the best thing that we've been able to do is to do media like this and get the word out there that child identity theft is a problem. Excuse me. <laughs> and also that parents need to stop giving out their children's information. And we have a really good tool to use for that. Um, when you go to, for instance, enroll your child in school, they're going to ask, 
can I have your child's social security number? The question is, why do you need it? And if you don't need it, then, and if I don't give it to you, what will happen? So if you can tell your listeners that, Mari, that would really help a lot. Well, you know, and, and that's true. Let's talk about some of the things because I think we're, we're probably scaring a lot of people who, who are parents out there who are, oh, my gosh, there's nothing I can do. Let's talk about some of the ways that they can actually put up some barriers. One of them, like you said, is before, Correct, when, you, you know, before someone, um, before you give your social, your child's social security number out, you, you ask what you need it for. You know, does the coach really need it? I mean, how many times does the coach ask for it? And, and is it really necessary? That's right. And, you know, Mari, as your listeners are listening to this radio show, they need to be understanding that there is very few times we need to give out a child's information to anyone. Right, right. So, so you know, and now um, we have a law in California, as you know, that the Social Security number is not to be used as an ID number for any scholastic institution, not at, not at a uh, elementary school level, high school level, or college level. No, there's really only two times that they really need to give it out. One would be for tax purposes. So obviously if you're opening up a financial account, there's going to be taxes involved in that um, for the IRS purposes. Right. Um, we're not talking about credit because kids aren't getting credit cards, and if they are, they're getting co-signed by the adult who is the one who's taking the financial responsibility. Right. Now, Strangely sometimes enough, pe- the doctor needs it one time only, and that would be, for instance, the pediatrician might need it because, God forbid, that child should die. They need it for the death certificate, and people say, well, but they could ask me if that happens, and I said, what if you're all on a trip together and all the family dies in the same car? The the problem is that um, in in the past the social security number was the was the number for like uh, Blue Shield, Blue Cross. The good news is is that people need to know that they most of the time you don't have to give it to the doctor anymore. You have to give that ID number, and Correct. and so you know I well, think that's why the doctors still ask for it for their medical records and right. hopefully. They bury it deep in a database somewhere to be used only in the event of that horrible disaster. And, and Linda, you know, you, what you were talking about before is asking why and also asking them, how are they going to safeguard those numbers? Are they going to have it in a cubbyhole that people can come by at night and do their cleaning and then take out, you know, your child's file out That's of your correct. pediatrician's office or your dentist's office? And who has access to it? Exactly. Only the doctor, the receptionist. Anyone who works there, the cleaning staff, um, I have not given out my Social Security number more often than I've given it out simply by saying, what happens if I don't give it to you? And they say nothing. I said, then it shouldn't have been on the form in the first place, and I draw a line right through it. Exactly. And that's what parents need to do. They need to say that that same thing, like, you know, what will happen if I don't give it to you? Is my child going to be denied some service? If your child is, if they tell you, yes, your child will be denied service, then you got to ask the next question, why? What, what law are you talking about, right? That's correct. Plus, I have a man who said, the doctor wants to have it every time we check in, and that's what they're using it for. And I said, I would have a talk with that doctor and ask his reasons why. And if you're not satisfied with the answer, maybe it's time to change doctors. Yep. 
Yep. There's very few things you can get only at one place. Um, also, please, I know it's tempting to sign up for those birthday clubs where they get a free ice cream cone or a hamburger. Spend the dollar and a quarter and buy it for them instead. Let's not put them on any more mailing lists than we need to. Exactly. And how about what parents should do? In fact, I'm going um, in just a, a week or so to this, uh, the Internet and your child. So what what do you recommend to parents about how they should help their kids to protect themselves, whether they're on the phone or on the Internet. What are some of the things that you tell parents that they should be listening right now about taking some responsibility to minimize their child's risk? I think we need to start talking about identity theft somewhere close to the third or fourth grade. And I know people are going to think that's outrageous. But our children are from the information age. They're already on computers in nursery school. Right. And sometimes we have great parents who are monitoring everything that's going on that. Right. With that computer, and sometimes that computer's in that child's room. We need to watch out what information they're putting on blogs, especially the profiles. Oh, yeah, and those are them, scary. Do not put personal information. Don't tell your age. Don't give out an address. Don't give out a credit card number. Warn them about websites. Just because you see something on a website that looks interesting doesn't mean that website's real, and you may be giving your social secu- uh, credit card number or mom's credit card number right. to a scam artist. We need to, the same way as we teach kids, don't talk to strangers. Don't talk to strangers on the Internet about personal information. We need to have them. I had an 8-year-old child who kept telling a split family, her mom, dad's been buying, has a name on, with my, a card with my name on it. And we go out and we buy things with it sometimes. And the mom didn't believe it. She said, oh, it must be a library card. The child finally brought home a bill and showed it to the mother and said, see, We've been buying things, and my name's on. It's right here on the bill too. And then they finally believed her. Now, an eight-year-old's in the third grade. <laughs> it's not too young to start doing that. We need to teach what is identity theft. The same reason that we teach kids good touch, bad touch. We need to let kids know they are getting of that age where they are starting to recognize maybe mom or dad is doing something that's not quite right. In which case case they need to talk with a responsible adult who can assess the situation properly. The child may not understand what they're seeing, but if we give them a little information about identity theft in an age-appropriate way, and it's simple as saying, you know what, we all have different ways to identify myself. I'm named Linda, I'm talking to Mari, but I also have a unique number, which is my social security number, but it's private. It's something I don't share with most people. Right. And, and you know, even on the phone, I mean, kids answer the phone all the time. And they Correct. need And they need to be taught also that when, when they're asked questions, that they should not be answering questions to someone that they don't know on the phone as well. Because that's where, you know, a lot of, you know, sensitive information can be divulged. As, and so that's another thing that a lot of parents don't even think about. What about the schools? Should should the schools be teaching um, privacy and, and personal identification protection? I think that in every high school, when they start teaching life skill classes, where hopefully they're teaching financial responsibility, how to create a budget, how to live on a budget, we need to talk about identity theft. 
because people turn to identity theft once they can't get credit any longer, which means they have not learned how to budget. They've not learned how to keep impulse control, um, that they have are living beyond their means. And if we can help them to understand budgeting and everything else, identity theft fits right into that because then they're starting to look for it. When I have an 18-year-old who goes, okay, I've got my credit reports and I don't understand why I couldn't get credit. There's all this stuff on here. What does it mean? It becomes my unfortunate task to say, what year did that account first get opened up? Well, you were 11 years old there. Yeah. What addresses were being used on your or on your credit report? They said, they're all the same address. It's my house address. It's where I live. It's where my family and I live. And I am the one, unfortunately, in the situation to say, someone in your family has been using your Social Security number. And this can keep these kids from getting college loans, right? Student loans, from getting a job at age Emotionally 16. Emotionally for life. Yes, I mean it. It is. Uh, it's not just about money. It's about no. the emotional impact on these kids and what it may preclude them from getting. But you know, we have. We're here. We are at the University of California in Irvine, and we have people who are listening that are students, and they might say, "Well, what do I care? Why should I care about this if I'm not even a parent? You know, it's too far away." Because hey. you're eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and twenty-one, twenty-two years old. You're going to apply for credit for the first time. You're going to go get a, try to get a job and have a security clearance. You've just spent four years getting a great education. What if you can't use that education? Have you checked your credit report? Everybody can check it now over the age of 18. Once credit has first been established, there will be a report for you. And I think that's where people misunderstand. They think that credit reports begin at birth. They don't. Right. They begin with the first application for credit. So if you've never applied for credit in your life, it's like trying to check a library book out that has never been written yet. So that first application for credit will show you do you have a problem or not. And once you've got that that credit card, I would start checking your credit on an annual basis. And that's a really good point, too, because a lot of the students who are in this campus are just starting to get credit. And, you know, when you're a student at the university, they start sending you all these pre-approved offers because they know you're a student and you're going to start, you know, spending money and parents are going to start giving you a, a credit card or a debit card, God forbid, and all these things so that you can start, you know, managing your budget when parents are home and kids are away at college. So it is, it's really an important point. But before I forget, I want to reintroduce Linda. We are talking uh, to Linda Foley, who is the co-founder and co-director of the Pri- uh, Identity Theft Resource Center in San Diego, California. She is a nationally known expert on identity theft. She's working hard on helping everybody with identity theft, consumers as well as victims, and especially she's been a, a real leader with regard to this concern of child identity theft. Linda, there's been some recent statistics on child identity theft from the Federal Trade Commission. Can you share some of those? Yes, Um, and we have to remember that the statistics that the Federal Trade Commission gets from their call center are consumer-driven, but even that is telling. A few years ago, it used to be 2% of the calls were about victims under the age of 18. Then it went up to 3%. Last year, it was uh, two years ago, it was 4%, and last year, it was 5%. If we use the number 10 million victims, which is a number from two years ago, right. 
we're talking about a half a million children under the age of 18 who are calling, or parents or someone is calling the FTC saying, this child may be a victim of identity theft. We're talking right now to students at a college level who, remember we were talking about you got your Social Security card and said it I when I first started working. Right. The ones we're talking to right now who are in college, they got their Social Security numbers at birth. Right. Someone has had 18 years to possibly use that card. And unfortunately, the IRS started this practice. And when we look at the FTC study, the highest peak is the age group of 18 to 29. Yes. Do I believe that age group is more stupid, that they're more vulnerable, that they are less cautious? A little bit because they're not quite as educated, but I also know, based on the emails that I receive, that a lot of these, when you do the follow-up, have cases that are started before they turned 18 and are just now being discovered. Right, right, because that, they are so vulnerable at that age. They really are. Yeah. Yeah. And so, as a community, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a family. It's going to take the whole of the United States to protect the children of our of our of our United States. Right. So Linda, let's talk about um obviously creditors are are out there issuing credit to these fraudsters who yeah. are, you know, cloning these kids. So what are the credit issuers doing about this issue? Nothing. And what they're <laughs> saying is and I've been looking into this question, as you know, quite a bit. I've right. spent two years, Jay and I have been spending two years now working with Senator Cantwell to try to put together a legislative solution. And we're going to have to probably do it at the federal level. I'm not sure we can do it at state levels because we're dealing with the Social Security Administration. Your Social Security number is made up of three sets of numbers. One is geographic location the second is batches, which more or less tells what year it was issued. Mm-hmm. And the third, four, or the last set of four numbers are like a PIN number. So when people ask, well, just give me your last four numbers, you're actually giving them the most sensitive numbers of all. Right. The Social Security number does not help to tell someone's age. And the credit issuers basically are blind on this. So whatever age is put on a credit application is what the credit issuers are taking as fact unless... They're told otherwise. The credit reporting agencies, as much information as they have on us, have said we don't have their ages either because the only information we have is what the credit issuers provide to us. They're not like the big data brokers like ChoicePoint that have more access to public information. Our goal is to try to help the credit issuers know this is a minor red flag you probably don't want to issue credit to this person because you're never going to collect on the debt. Right. So, Linda, so if, if you had your druthers for the kind of legislation that you'd like to see happen, what would you like to see happen so that if someone is listening to this, they can support you on this? It's well, still in the working stages because we have to get around a couple of privacy or work with some privacy laws and to make sure that in creating this bill, We don't open a Pandora's box and allow thieves more access to children's information. Right, right. And it's a very thin line we're walking right now. Our goal is to create a list that's simply going to be a minor's list so that credit issuers will know this is a minor. Once they're no longer a minor, their name falls off the list, and then life just continues on as normal. 
So, so we'd basically have something that the credit reporting agencies, who who really are are holding this information and as profiles, if they had a master list. Correct, especially when they see there's been no credit report before. Right. This would be they can say, wait a minute. Um, there's no credit report on this person, and it appears on the Social Security Administration's minors list. Right. Now, they should, that, that should be law, that they should be required to let the creditors know, just like right now, um, under the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act, the credit reporting agencies have to tell a creditor when the, there is an address on the credit report that differs from the address that's on the application. Correct. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's fraudulent, but it is a red flag. In other words, you better, you as the creditor, better take some steps to verify that this person really is, has moved, or this Correct. person really. And, and that's what these creditors don't want to do, do they, Linda? They don't no. want to take extra steps. They don't want to spend the money. They'd rather, they say that the cost of loss due to fraud is less than the cost of taking the extra time to verify applications. It's the wrong formula. Every single one of the people listening today is going, but what about my privacy? What about my trust? How can I trust a company that doesn't respect my privacy? And I think when the companies start to wake up and realize they're going to lose consumers if they don't start to value our privacy and our information, as much as they do their company secrets, right? They're not have. There's no willingness to change. We do have some good leaders within the corporate industry who are making changes, and California law has forced some of those changes. Frankly, exactly, and that's because California has the Identity Theft Resource Center, the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, and they and we even have an Office of Privacy Protection. So California has and been Cal the leader. And CalPERG and Consumer yeah. Act Union, we've got them all. We've got them all, so we're lucky about that. So, yeah. you know, the, the bottom line is that really, you know, people need to understand that it is the creditors, the credit issuers, who are in the position to prevent this financial Correct. identity theft. And I think it's also going to come down to one other issue. We can, and it's the same thing, we have the right to put fraud alerts on our credit reports. And there is a law that says that they must observe these, but there's no private right of action. Right. We need to get that incorporated in there. It's the same thing with this minors. If you have been told that this is a minor and you still issue credit, and it starts to impact this child's life now that they're 18, 19 years old, and we can show that they were told this was a minor up front, we need to have a private cause of action so that I do believe, unfortunately, that lawsuits will start to change some of these companies' opinion about how they're going to run their business. It will hold them accountable. The problem, as you know, and we've talked about this together many times, is that when these legis- when the legislation passes at the federal level, Absolutely, they always take out a private right of action. Right. So, so that's Which, why. By the way, for those people listening, means you're right to have a lawsuit. Yeah. In other words, if somebody um, issues a credit card to a fraudster after you have a fraud alert on your credit profile, you don't have a right to sue them. Okay. No. And if someone refuses to give you all the documentation of the fraud, 
and and you've you know you have found out that you're a victim or your child is a victim and you say hey give me all the applications give me all the documentation if they refuse to give it to you even though that's the law you can't sue them only a federal agency can take action against them so that's what Linda and I are talking about is this is pretty scary that if you finally do set up a system where yeah. you know the the credit reporting agency has to look and see this is a minor and if you still issue credit to the minor you know, you can't be sued. Well, where's the enforcement? That's, Correct. That's, that's one of the big deals about this. It is this. a big deal. The other big deal, and I really want to emphasize this to everyone who is listening at this moment, and it goes for all victims of identity theft. Even if you did something, and I'll put it in quotes, stupid by giving out your Social Security number and you should not have, you are a victim. There is nothing to be ashamed of. You should not feel guilty. We have built a guilt-written victim population, and we've got to stop doing that. We need to take this problem of child identity theft out of the closet. I have very few people who will come forward and talk to the media because they don't want to be pointed at at school. They don't want their deep family secrets told about. It's almost incestual. Right. We don't want to share our family's private business. We don't want someone to know we're a victim of a crime. Well, if someone steals my car... You better believe I'm willing to go on TV and said there's a problem with car theft in my area. Why should we hide? Let's come out of the closet on this. And until we find some big voices who are willing to come out of the closet, and I'm hoping some celebrities are listening to this and are going to help take up this cause and say, this is unjust, this is wrong, and we should not be punishing people. I've had some victims, and I'm sure you have as well, who have gone public, and it's turned into a very negative experience because people have been pointing to them and go, oh, you're a victim of identity theft. You must have done something wrong. Right. You have not done anything wrong. I and, can't and, emphasize that enough. Well, you know, Linda, the fact that you and I have been a victim and we realize that we don't have to stay victims, that we, you know, we may have been victimized, but we are definitely not victims. No. And, and that's the problem is that people are uh, blamed by a lot of the financial industry, and the children are not, are not uh, you know, to blame for this either. And no. so that's, that's one of the real problems and here. And we're told, it... shred everything, you know, watch out for shoulder surfing, don't give out your information, don't care. And parents, please, stop carrying your children's Social Security cards in your wallet. Right. It doesn't belong there. Okay? No. But this is not a consumer issue as much as it is a workplace issue. And we can't control what goes on in the workplace. Yes, as consumers, we need to take certain steps to help reduce our risk. But companies need to be collaboratively helping as as well. And, you know, I think it's really important to remember that most of the time, you know, I'm not sure, as you said, we don't know the statistics as to how much of this identity theft occurs from, you know, evil family members, whether it's a, a parent Correct. or an aunt or an uncle or a stepdad. I mean, we know that that does Or happen. a guardian. Or um, a guardian. We but- just had a small focus group that we heard about where they were interviewing a half a dozen foster children now that they've been a year out of foster care and on oh. their own, oh. 19 years old. Half of them had, had their, found out their identities had been stolen by either a guardian or by their parent while they were in foster care. Uh, you know, I, I, it makes me think of that show that you were just on. Both of us were actually on that, and you looked great, by the way. And, <laughs> and that was on CS, uh, CNBC, yeah. um, where they showed this gentleman who now has a child of his own. He's about 28 years old, and his 
father had stolen his identity before he was 18 and had literally, you know, ruined his credit, ruined his life, and he's not even talking to his dad. So, you know, I mean, the emotional impact is another issue that is um, terrifying for any identity theft victim, but especially for children. And it can split families apart. I've had 18, 19, and 20-year-olds who want to go forward with that police report, but they're getting so much pressure from the family not to. Right. You can't do that to grandma. You can't do that to your sister. You can't do that to your mother. What a horrible child you are. Yep. Why are we... Go, go ahead. Why do we punish the victim instead of the criminal? I don't understand. Why are we supporting the criminal instead of the victim? The family should be rallying around this victim who has no future. Oh, just pay off the bills. We'll help you pay it off. And in seven years, your credit will be okay. Right. And, no, and- that's not acceptable. No, it isn't, because it can ruin their, their whole career. But let's talk. We have just a few minutes left. Um, let's have you give your website again and yes. tell tell our audience uh, what they can see on your website and how they can be helpful to you and maybe join the cause. And anything you want to tell my audience, this is it. Let's tell them Thank about you. the good work you do. Our website is www.idtheftcenter.org. If you go to Victim Resources under Victim Guides, you'll see three information guides on child identity theft. One of them is what to do if you are a victim. The second one is how to order your child's credit report. And remember, please use that sparingly. Right, right. And the third is what are some of the tools we've been talking about of things to avoid identity theft for your child or some red flags to be watching for. Um, If we're dealing with family identity theft, and it's a custody issue. Please, as Mari said, talk this over with your family law attorney. This is not the time to play amateur detective. We need to get professionals involved in this. We need law enforcement to say, oh, it's just a kid. It's not a big deal. And, in fact, some of the state laws are written in such a crazy way that children's identities are not even recognized as identity. The theft of a child's identity is not even recognized as identity theft. Right. So we need to make some changes about that. You can help us out by, as of course for a nonprofit, there's a section where you can donate to our center. Which you know I do all the time. I know. Thank you and so I, much. And I want to encourage people to, to do that because it is a tax write-off and it is a way that you can really help not only other people but yourself as well because they're doing such great work in protecting consumers. And we're going to want people, we're putting together some scripts right now that we're hoping we're going to get speakers who are going to go into classrooms. Mm -hmm. To talk to schools, we're trying to raise money to put together a video and get it out there across the United States so we can help with the teen education program. So if you're interested in giving some help to the Identity Theft Resource Center, you can go to www.idtheftcenter.org. You can email them right there. There's a contact uh, so that you can email Linda and Jay and all of the wonderful people that work with them. And you could say, gee, I want to help. This, you know, Tell me what I can do, and Linda will give you some work to do, and she'll also give you ways that you can become um, much more involved in, in helping yourself as well as the community. And if you think you know someone who is a victim of identity theft, please make sure that they either 
get to Mari's website or get to our website. And we so share that they can get the help that they need. Right. So thank you so much, Linda, for joining us. We're going to have you come back on after you get some legislation going, and we're thank there you. to help you and love you. So um, everybody go to idtheftcenter.org. And you have been listening to Linda Foley, the director of the Identity Theft Resource Center, and you've been li- listening to Privacy Piracy at 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org. Please go and listen uh, to, to learn more about our guests and listen to our previous interviews and even download our podcasts. Go to KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy. I want to thank my wonderful engineer and co-host Lloyd Boshaw for his great work. And stay tuned next and you will have a, um, a chance to listen to, oh, goodness, Neapolitan music from 6 to 8 p.m. And after that, to uh, Between the Lines from 8 to 10 p.m. Listen to us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. at 88.9 FM in Irvine. Privacy piracy. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. Darling, you say you want to write a book? Well, then you must listen to Writers on Writing, darling. Authors, literary agents gabbing and babbling about the art and the business of writing. Thursdays, 5 p.m. Darling, you must. Barbara DeMarco Berici hosts. Yeah, listen, darling. On KCI-FM in Irvine. Planetary Radio is Public Radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m. right here on KUCI.